0: Signing up is easy and free. Expedia made to travel. We got a really great new sponsor. It's homes.com. Let me tell you about homes.com. First of all, I love real estate. I love looking at real estate. If you are looking to move, you need to go to homes.com. Why? Because it's more than just browsing and shopping for new homes. Homes has everything that you need in order to buy a home, move to a new home, all there on one site. You want to know a neighborhood without ever stepping foot in it? Well, Homes.com has comprehensive neighborhood details. Whenever you find a home you love, share it. Homes.com's unique collaboration tools let you exchange notes on listings and even create photo inspo boards with your family or your friends. And for all of you that are moving with kids and you want to know more about the local school system, Homes.com's detailed school information covers everything you need to know to find the right schools for your kids. And you can also get the perfect agent because homes.com has agent directory and profiles. And the best part, homes.com features the listing agent on every listing, so you can easily connect with them after stalking the home and figuring out which ones you like without having to scramble to find contact info. Go to homes.com to learn more. We've done your homework. Hey, it's Mel, and welcome to the Mel Robbins Podcast. Okay, so today's episode is fricking fire. And speaking of fire, I gotta throw some amazing celebratory fire in your direction. I gotta say thank you. Thank you so much for listening, for sharing these episodes, for being as excited as I am about this thing. I started this because I just wanted to connect with you on a deeper level. And I wanted to be able for us to inspire and empower each other to create better lives. And baby we are doing it. Um, I also want to say thank you for being a force for good. I love the fact that you're already pouring in topic and guest suggestions. Please keep them coming because we are going to create this thing together. We are looking at the DMs. We're looking at the stuff that you're leaving on the forums on the website. This is something we are building together and it is just incredible. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So today's episode Hello, game changer. This is fire, people. So what are we talking about? Um, Anxiety. Yep, we got to talk about anxiety. My mission with this episode of the Mel Robbins podcast is to profoundly, fundamentally change the way you think about and approach anxiety. By the end of this episode, you will be empowered to do way more than just survive your anxiety or try to cope with it, okay? In just a few minutes, you are going to meet an incredible expert on the topic. His name is Dr. Russ Kennedy. He's a medical doctor, he has a degree in neuroscience, and in my opinion, he has written the book on anxiety. And so he's gonna come on and we're gonna talk all about the topic, we're gonna change the way that you think about it, that you approach it, and more importantly, Dr. Kennedy says you can heal your anxiety once and for all. Yeah, sure, you're gonna have moments where anxiety rise up and you know, you're gonna have stressful situations, but in terms of the ongoing overwhelm, nervousness, on edge feeling, he's gonna teach you how to heal that. His work is life-changing and it has made a huge difference in my life and I cannot wait for you to meet him in a few minutes. Now, the interesting thing about anxiety is that I am considered one of the world's leading experts on anxiety. And I'm what you call a life tested expert because my expertise has been earned the hard way, the painful way. And that is by living through and struggling with anxiety for almost 45 years. The truth is, when I really think about my past, I don't ever remember a time when I wasn't nervous or feeling on edge or anxious or somewhere other than the room that I was currently standing in. I think if you could come out of the womb as a baby having a panic attack, that was Mel Robbins. And that panic that I was, I think, hardwired with in my nervous system, it only grew as I got older. In fact, you know how you go to those little camps when you're little, like with the Y, or, you know, maybe you go to Girl Scout camp. There is this really infamous story about me uh, in sixth grade. So in sixth grade at North Muskegon Elementary School, there's this huge crescendo at the end of the year. And the entire sixth grade takes over the Boy Scout and Girl Scout camp that's like 10 miles away. And everybody goes to camp for five days and four nights. And it is supposed to be the most amazing thing that happens during elementary school. Everybody talks about going to sixth grade camp. Here's the thing about Mel. I was so riddled with anxiety and panic while I was there that I called my parents every single day and begged for them to come and get me. I was so out of control that the counselors actually acquiesced and said I could go home. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. Do you know how anxious you have to be to get trained counselors to basically go, this kid is out of control? We can't handle this. We got to get her out of here. Get her parents to come pick her up. Like, I I can't deal with this. And so I got what my anxiety wanted. I got to leave. And as I was packing up my cabin, my friends came in. They're like, where are you going, Mel? Tonight's a big scavenger hunt. It's the last night. Why are you leaving? I lied to them and said, oh, my grandmother's had a heart attack. So my parents are coming. We got to go. We got to go see her. Yep. That was sixth grade Mel, full of anxiety. And it only got worse as I got older. In fact, before every track meet or tennis match that I had to play as a varsity athlete, I had such a nervous stomach. That was the term that was used back in the early 80s. She has a nervous stomach. Well, you know how I dealt with my nervous stomach? I would stand behind like a bush next to the tennis courts. And I would have this blue bottle packed in my backpack. It was a blue bottle of Melanta. This is an antacid medicine that old people drink for for reflux. I would chug that stuff. It got so bad that my parents would start buying that stuff by the case. It was disgusting and chalky, but I chugged it anyway. Honestly, I can't believe I'm admitting this to you right now. And here's the thing, it only got worse. I mean, little elementary school Anxiety Mel turned into high school Anxiety Mel. And then, of course, I was college train wreck Anxiety Mel. I don't even want to admit half the things I did in college when I was anxious, like jumping from one relationship to another or waking up every single morning with uh, anxiety full of regrets about the night before. You know, when I stop and think about, oh, my God, I feel like I need Melanta right now. My stomach is starting to be like... And I laugh about it. But honestly, at the time, it's sad. Like, I just didn't enjoy college. I don't even like to go to college reunions because I did not like the person that I was back then as my anxiety was just raging out of control. Well, when I got to law school, thankfully. The anxiety got so unbearable that I got medical help and I was finally diagnosed with anxiety. And this would have been in the early 90s. And so anxiety was not a word that people threw around casually back then. I mean, anxiety meant there was something terribly wrong with you. People didn't talk about it. If you went to therapy, you were a freak. And so thankfully for me, though, this diagnosis, it was a godsend. Because I finally had a word and a doctor validating what I had been struggling with for my entire life for 20 years. He prescribed Zoloft. It was a complete game changer for me. It's almost like that medication acted like a ladder. You see, the anxiety and all the mental spiraling that it caused, that spiraling put me in a very deep hole mentally, physically, and spiritually. And that Zoloft was like a little ladder that allowed me rung by rung to start to climb out of that hole and do the work that you need to do to start to take control of your life. So I took Zoloft for 20 years. In fact, the only time I didn't take Zoloft was when our first daughter, Sawyer, she's now 23 years old. So when she was born, I had been off Zoloft. Uh, I had to taper off of it because we didn't know if you could like breastfeed or whatever on that medication. They know now it's safe to breastfeed with it. But when she was born, I had such severe postpartum depression, the really scary kind where you couldn't be left alone because the doctors were afraid you were going to hurt yourself or you were going to hurt your baby. It was a terrifying eight-week experience in my life. And so I'm telling you, between the 45 years of dealing with my own anxiety, and on top of it, Chris and I having kids that have had anxiety that at times were so severe that they slept on the floor of our bedroom, I just always thought, okay, I have anxiety. That's the way that it is. It's just the way that I'm wired. I hate it. I hate having anxiety, but I just have to learn to live with it. I was wrong. You do not have to hate anxiety and you do not have to just learn to live with it. You can learn how to understand it and you can learn simple things that will help you take control of it and change how you respond to moments of uncertainty and moments of stress. And so in my early 40s, the anxiety got so crippling again because there were a lot of things going on in our life that were triggering it that every single morning the alarm would go off and I would lay in bed for an hour and I would just stare at the ceiling. And the anxiety, it's almost like it felt like a gravity blanket pinning me to that bed. And as I would lay in that bed and think about all my problems, time would tick by. The kids would miss the bus. I became a person. I didn't even recognize. Now I go into this story in great detail in episode three of the Mel Robbins podcast called Motivation is Garbage. But I wanna just tell you that I know what it's like when anxiety is ruining or running your life. Because when anxiety was at its worst for me, I created this thing called the five second rule. And it was out of sheer desperation and fear that I created this thing. What is it? It's a brain hack. And if you ever feel overwhelmed by anxious thoughts or anxious feelings, just count backwards, five, four, three, two, one, and you can interrupt those thoughts and feelings and then physically move. And ever since I invented this thing, I've been teaching the five second rule on stages around the world, and it has changed the lives of millions of people. Now, here's one of the things I want to distinguish before we bring Dr. Kennedy on in just a second. A lot of the tools that I am known for and that I teach and the things that I've been researching that help with anxiety, that help with mindset, that help with mental health, I call these tools a neck up approach because they attack your mindset. They focus on your thoughts. They help you change the patterns of thought in your mind and the default thinking and the self-criticism and the worry and the procrastination and the perfectionism that can take hold. On today's episode, though, we're going to go in a different direction. We're going to talk about a whole body of tools that you need that I would classify as a neck down approach to anxiety. We are going to focus on the body. We're gonna focus on your nervous system. We're gonna focus on thinking about anxiety as something happening in your body first. Because the fact is that if you only attack from the neck up with talk therapy or using my tools, yeah, it's gonna help. Yes, they are an essential part of the toolkit that you need for coping. And yes, it will make a huge difference. But what Dr. Kennedy is going to explain to you today is game changer because he's gonna teach you that you can actually heal your anxiety, but you have to attack it from the neck down. You have to stop running away from the anxiety and address what's going on in your body. And that's exactly what we're gonna talk about today. And we're also gonna talk about how the heck do you do this? This is gonna be packed with takeaways because I'm going to just make sure that it is. So Dr. Kennedy, he is the best-selling author of the book Anxiety RX. His work is changing the lives of people around the world. He is helping people heal their anxiety in his clinical practice. And you're going to want to bookmark this episode because you're going to learn so many takeaways that you're going to absolutely want to come back to this again and again. And you definitely are going to want to share this with your friends and family. In fact, you'll be trying his tools as you listen to this episode. He has a degree in neuroscience, he's a medical doctor, and perhaps most importantly, like me and maybe you, he struggled with anxiety for decades. But using what you're about to learn in this episode, he has cured himself. So let's get him on the line. So Dr. Kennedy, I've been following you for a long time online. I love your work and I'm so thrilled to be talking to you and to be able to introduce you to everybody. So on the topic of anxiety, where do you want to start? Well, first
1: of all, I think people have anxiety wrong. Really, anxiety of the mind is really a state of alarm that's stuck in our body. And that alarm is usually from childhood, usually from unresolved traumas that we had that our parents or caregivers didn't shepherd us through. So it's this old state of alarm that's actually stuck in our body that revs up the thoughts. So it's not really a thinking process, more, it's more of a feeling process. And we have to fix anxiety by fixing the feeling, not necessarily focusing on the thinking.
0: Well, that sounds like what's traditional medicine and interventions have gotten wrong, that we focused yes. all the attention on thinking, which can help. But actually, in order to heal and get it completely under control, you got you to gotta focus on the body. So tell me about your background, though, because you first realized you had anxiety when you were in medical school.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I, I felt uneasy before that. I mean, I grew up with a dad with who, bi- who was schizophrenic and bipolar. So my childhood was pretty chaotic. He was never abusive or violent or anything like that. But there was a point where I, I really um, kind of stopped trusting him. So it created a tremendous, a tremendous amount of alarm in my system. And so I became a rescuer. You know, I kind of rescued my mom with humor. I rescued my dad in a lot of ways by looking after him by the time, from the time I was about 13 years old. So, really, for me, I've been a rescuer most of my life. So, it was just a natural state of events that I would go in and become a doctor. And so, I did my pre med in neuroscience because I love neuroscience. And I focused my practice a lot in anxiety. And then I went and did a lot of extra work in development psychology, you know, because I believe most anxiety, most mental illness, if you will, starts in childhood. So I really learned about how the brain develops, how 80% of our, our brain develops by the time we're five years old, and how different aspects of trauma in a child manifests as alarm in the adult, because that allows me to try to track back, find that alarm, Bring it up to the surface and you got to feel as you heal it. So bring it up to the surface and then allow people to process through it rather than just fix your thinking.
0: Okay. I just want to stop and make sure that everybody heard takeaway number one. The sentence you just said was really interesting. You said your approach to dealing with this alarm is to bring it to the surface and then allow people to process through it rather than just fix your thinking. And so the big takeaway that I've gotten already in this conversation is this, that most anxiety and most mental illness starts in our childhood. And that's due to the fact that 80% of our brains develop by the time we're five. And your work, Dr. Kennedy, is helping us as adults to connect the adult anxiety that we're feeling now to all those experiences that we had, like even before we were five years old, like experiences of early childhood that are stored in our body, that's my huge takeaway, that anxiety, mental illness, it begins in childhood. So before we talk about how you heal the alarm in the body, can we just back up for a minute? Because you were diagnosed with anxiety when you were in medical school, and you have been on this long journey of focusing on what I kind of call the neck up approach, attacking the thoughts. You've done tons of modalities that have led you to where you are now. So for the benefit of everybody listening, can you please explain everything that you have done to come up with this approach?
1: Yeah, um, you know, psychotherapy, CBT, ACT, LMNOP, whatever. You know, there's just, there's so many things. I, I spent probably hundreds of thousands of dollars on therapy. And, uh, and then I went, I I did ayahuasca, LSD, MDMA, all those kind of things really to really help me understand, um, what my mind was doing. Um, I became a yoga and meditation teacher. So I got certified in that. So I try and, and, and I lived in a temple in India. Like I tried to see anxiety from more perspectives basically than anyone else in the world. And then I took all that information and I kind of chopped it down into what do people need to know and how do they heal? Because what we're doing now is we're trying to fix thinking with more thinking. We're trying to change the thoughts. And you have to do both. Like you have to have some sort of like thought changing ability, but you have to also include the body as well. And I think what most therapies miss is this, link with the body the body has tremendous amounts of wisdom in it and if we can bring the body up because the body will never lie to you but your mind lies to you all the time so we need to we need both we need cognitive therapy but we also need some element of semantic therapy and i think on some level too the psychedelics are going to play a big role in getting us past this protective ego that allows us to go into our trauma so we can feel it so we can heal it so i think the big thing is realizing that anxiety what you're calling anxiety In your mind is really a state of alarm
0: in your body
1: and that's really it and so we have to heal it from your body
0: when a patient comes to you how do you describe what anxiety is
1: well usually they come to me with anxiety already so you know i'll I'll go into you know what are you feeling what's going on, what happens to you. And usually, almost universally, they'll describe a thinking process. My husband's driving me nuts. I can't drive. I can't go past this. I can't go into grocery stores. I can't go on the bus. And usually what I'll say is, you know, that's all in your head. Like that's all the story that your left hemisphere, your analytical left hemisphere is making up. Now, what do you feel in your body, in your physiology, when you say you feel anxiety? And when I the first almost the first thing I can get people to do is say, I'm gonna change the word anxiety to alarm because words have consciousness to them. Anxiety doesn't have a lot of consciousness to it.
0: I agree. And I feel like it's thrown around all the time. And we think that anxiety is like a nervous stomach and a lot of worry in your head about what's gonna happen. And I love that you're saying that we wanna start talking about the alarm that goes off in your body. And before we even talk about what that means, one other thing that I would love for you to address is what are ways in which anxiety expresses itself? And I'm gonna give you an example. Sure. So, so I'm your classic textbook type A, hypervigilant, sure. always worried, anxiety yeah. type. Uh, panic attacks, shortness of breath. You know, I you can you can literally feel the 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 alarm vibrating through my skin. But Mm -hmm. our daughter, who is 23, when she's feeling anxious or the alarm is going off in her body, she doesn't emit worry or tension. She emits frustration and anger. Sure. So what are the various ways in which anxiety gets expressed in people? Because I think there's a lot of people that, quote, struggle with anxiety that don't realize that it's anxiety that they're struggling with.
1: Yeah. Well, um, I think what happens is that her autonomic nervous system kind of goes into a sympathetic, you know, fight or flight response. And for her, the only acceptable response inside of her is frustration or anger, because that's that's how it gets expressed. Mm. Now, other people will shut down. They'll go into freeze, right? So sympathetic nervous system is fight, flight and freeze and fawn too, but f- freeze mostly. In that particular situation. So some people will go into this like withdrawal, they'll stop moving, their eye contact disappears, they, their body stops kind of moving in a, in a fluid kind of way. And it's really people display anxiety or alarm, as I should say, using my own little terminology in very different ways. And I think it's really becoming aware of it because I have many people that send me messages saying, I didn't even know I had anxiety until I read your book. It's like, well, I don't know if I'm doing any favors there, (laughs) but you know, it, it really is. It really does manifest because when I was 20, I didn't know what anxiety was. I just knew that I had this impending doom, this sense of impending doom. And I didn't even know what it was. And I don't think a lot of people do.
0: I agree with you. So let's go back to the basics. Anxiety 101. When you say we're gonna now talk about anxiety is an alarm system in your body. And what, describe the alarm system to me.
1: Okay. So there's a structure in our brains called the amygdala. And the amygdala is often called the fear center of the brain. It's, it's an okay, you know, description, but it's, it's not the best. But basically the amygdala is involved in just about every fear reaction that we have. So, the amygdala will recognize something in your external environment or your internal environment, AKA worries, that alarms it. So, the amygdala has a super highway down to the brain stem, which controls your body. So, your blood pressure increases, your heart rate increases, your respiration increases. Everything seems to go along with that. So, we get this physiological change motivated mostly by the amygdala, but other, other factors in the brain as well. And that brings us into this state of alarm. And then what the left hemisphere does is it goes, We're alarmed. What do we have to be alarmed about? And then you start stacking. And I've heard you say this. I think it was in, in the five second rule about, I got to get up. You know, this is bad. That's bad. All this kind of stuff. That's what I call stacking. So as soon as your body feels the sense of alarm, your left hemisphere has to do something with it. So it has to make up worries and thoughts that are completely consistent with that painful sense of alarm in your system. So we start stacking up these worries, and of course that just creates more alarm, which creates more worries, which creates more alarm, and we get caught in this alarm anxiety cycle.
0: So let me see if I can unpack this, Dr. Kennedy. When I talk about anxiety, I, use these two examples, and they're really, really helpful. So I want to bring them into the conversation to help people understand the concept that you feel an alarm first, and then that your mind stacks thoughts on top of it. So there's a big difference, everybody, between situational anxiety, which is when that alarm in your body is triggered by a specific thing that's happening around you. That's different than generalized anxiety. Generalized anxiety is when that alarm is going off all the time in the background. So situational anxiety, here's an example, because it's very useful and helpful and life-saving to have situational anxiety. Yeah. Let's say you and I are driving down the road. We're having a great time. We're heading somewhere awesome for dinner, talking up a storm, and out of nowhere, oh my God, this truck comes swerving into our lane. (coughs) What do you feel? Well, holy cow, that alarm system waves through your body. And it needs to because it's got to wake you up. You can't be talking to me while you're driving the car and a truck is flying in. A, you got to react. And the second that that alarm goes off in your body and your heart races and your armpits sweat and you <gasps> go like this, your mind wakes up and then your mind starts stacking thoughts. Literally, we're talking nanoseconds. It is what's going on. Truck, move, swirl, boom, bah, be, ba. It is just looking for thoughts related to what's happening to explain this alarm and what you should do in reaction to it. Amazing. That alarm system just saved your life because it stopped you from talking to me and it made your brain sit up and pay attention so that you could react to what was happening. Right. Now here's what's interesting about situational anxiety. Let's go back to that same moment. The truck is now pulled back into its lane. We have safely pulled back into ours. We've nervously laughed at one another. And now that the situation is over, so is the alarm. Your body starts to rest. Your mind is no longer spinning. We go back to our conversation. All is well. That's why situational anxiety is a good thing. It can make you perform better. It helps you concentrate. But now, Dr. Kennedy, I want to talk about this example. And please, you know, when I'm done explaining it, let me know if, if this is right. Sure. Generalized anxiety is horrible. Because basically, you have that same feeling of the alarm that you feel when the truck is pulling into your lane, only you're just in your day to day life. So I remember once I was standing, uh, making coffee in my kitchen. And all of a sudden, I felt this enormous wave of anxiety. And just like the example of the truck, the second that that alarm goes off, your mind snaps into attention and start stacking thoughts. But here was my problem. There was nothing wrong. And so as my mind snapped to attention and started to stack thoughts, because there was nothing in the kitchen that made any sense as to why I'd have an alarm, it turned it back at me. Something's wrong. Someone's mad at you. Today's gonna be terrible. You really screwed something up. This is terrible. Maybe you're sick. Maybe you're gonna have a heart attack. Maybe something's wrong with Chris. Maybe somebody died, and that's why the alarm's gone. Like just the thoughts start spinning, which makes the alarm worse. That's why learning how to silence that alarm that's in the back room that can be triggered at a moment's notice with nothing that should be triggering it, that's what your work is about. And that's the difference between a situation that triggers you and an alarm being important and having a generalized situation where you're on edge all the time. How's that as an explanation, Dr. Kennedy?
1: I think that that's an explanation that's very simple and 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 it's very accurate, I think, is that we have this thing that I describe in my book called background alarm, which is basically kind of old unresolved emotional issues that are stuck in your body. You know, my colleague Gabor Maté talks about this too, emotions being stuck in the body. Which is a construct you can't separate the mind from the body of course but it's a construct and it helps people it really helps them understand that hey this is actually starting from my body and because we're so versed at speaking in words and communicating to to ourselves and to each other with words we don't get into the feeling so if i ask you hey mel uh, what does it feel like when you when you bite into an apple it's like well I don't know. I mean, so I say, what does it taste like? Well, it's sweet or it's sour, it's crunchy. It's like, we're so good at describing things in words, but if I, how do you feel when you bite into that apple? That's a brand new landscape. Like we're not used to feeling, we're in a society that values, that worships the mind and very, very rarely actually says, hey, get into your body, feel your body. And a lot of us don't want to feel our body because that's where the freaking pain is, right? So we retreat into our heads because it's an escape from this old alarm that's been trapped in your body
0: probably since childhood. Okay, great. Did you get that, everybody? From this point forward, Dr. Kennedy is saying that when it comes to that alarm in your body or the anxiety that you or a loved one may be dealing with, he is saying we must begin with a neck down approach of addressing the stored experiences in your body. And that when you do traditional talk therapy, you take a neck up approach, you should combine this neck down approach with it if you want to heal it. That is so cool. Okay, Dr. Kennedy. We have to take a quick break so we can hear a short word from our sponsors. But when we come back, I have to ask you about something that you believe that truly shocked me. And don't go anywhere, everyone, because this is going to surprise you, too. And we're going to be right back. The Mel Robbins podcast is proudly sponsored by Amica Insurance, our exclusive insurance partner. Amica Insurance is all about empathy. They know that your auto, home, and life insurance are more than just policies. Home insurance is about protecting the life you've built. Auto insurance is there to protect you on the road ahead. That's why Amica takes a consultative approach to help protect what matters most to you. They're a customer-owned insurance company that puts your needs first, and their representatives are available 24-7 for claim-related matters. As Amica says, empathy is our best policy. Now I want to pivot and talk about something that you believe that really surprised me. You believe, Dr. Kennedy, that all anxiety is triggered by the exact same singular source for all of us. So what is the source of all anxiety?
1: All anxiety is separation anxiety.
0: What does that mean?
1: Well, if you drill it down, it's, it's separation typically from yourself, but it starts with separation from from your parents on some level. If you feel separate from your parents, the people that are supposed to love you, care, see you, hear you, and love you. If you feel separate from them, it creates this alarm in our system. And then when we get this alarm in our system, our brain has to do something about that. So what we tend to do as children is, first of all, blame ourselves. We can't blame our parents for what's going on in our childhood environment. So we blame ourselves, and then we start taking jabs at ourselves, what I call jabs, which is basically judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. This is what we do to ourselves. This is the the birth of the inner critic.
0: So I find, and one of the things I'm, I'm, I am I want to do with this show, is to take like a lot of the stuff that sounds intellectual and sure. make it really digestible and understandable. So when you say separate, you're separate from your parents. Can you give us a few scenarios that, you know, aren't all horrific abuse situations that, that anybody can identify with when you say separate from your parents?
1: Yeah. There's something as simple as a parental mismatch. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a term. I don't know if I heard it or I made it up, but it's basically, I, I see a lot of, most of my patients, clients, whatever you want to call them, are female, and a lot of them have issues with their mom. So it's they felt separate. They, they felt this mismatch from their mother. They felt like, you know, we're not connected. I love my mother. She loves me. But, you know, I like Bach and she likes, you know, punk rock, you know, and, and just in different parts of our lives. They're very different, and that parental mismatch causes a tremendous amount of alarm in a child's system because you want to belong to a parent. You really want to feel like you're connected to your parent. And if you don't have that internal sense of attachment, it's very alarming to our system. And that alarm gets lodged in our body, and then that's what usually mediates the worries as we get older. It also mediates that thing I call jabs, which is judgment, abandonment, blame, and shame. We do that to ourselves. So when we're listening to our own thing, it's like, okay... How am I judging myself here? You wake up in the morning, as you say in, in, in high five habit, you wake up in the morning with anxiety or alarm, as I like to call it. And then you start thinking, you start stacking all these negative scenarios on top of yourself to make sense of it. When really what you should do, and, and take, this is out of your book, is I'm feeling anxious. Five, four, three, two, one, into my body. Into my body. Find a place in my body. Find a place in my breath. Find a place that feels safe in my body. And some people don't feel safe in their body. And we do something with that first, but really breath. Everybody's pretty much safe in their breath. Go five, four, three, two, one. 3, 1, into my body, out of my head. Because what that does is it gives a sense of control. It, t- it takes energy away from those rumination, ruminating thoughts. And it puts it where it belongs. Because maybe that alarm is your younger self that's asking for your attention. And as a medical doctor and neuroscientist, I kind of want to have a seizure sometimes when I talk about the ethereal nature of this. But really, from a practical sense, when you're anxious, find the alarm in your body.
0: Okay, so how lying. do you do that? So let's, so let's okay. just take a scenario right now. Let's just okay. say, um, and, you know, it could be anything. It sure. could be that you are sitting in the pickup line at school and you see somebody... That you have beef with and you start to feel like this wave hit you because you don't want to talk to that person or that person makes you nervous. Right. Situation we can all relate to. Totally. In that moment, sitting in the front seat of your car and you feel the alarm go off, how do you locate the damn thing? Because it's everywhere at this point. Yeah.
1: Well, sometimes it's everywhere. I mean, it feels like it's everywhere, I think. And as I was saying earlier, we're so used to communicating with ourselves in words, we don't really think to look at the alarm in our body, right? So what I would say is, as you look at this person that kind of triggers you a little bit, you know, feel your butt in the, in the car seat, you know, relax your shoulders, relax your jaw. You know, if you're not driving, like close your eyes for a second, just take a breath in and, and like a nice slow breath out and go, where in my physiology do I sense this? You know, imagine this person, it's like, okay, well I feel this sort of, you know, kind of ache in in my upper chest and it's, you know, maybe it's the size of an apple or whatever. And it feels like it's a pressure. It feels like it's radiating Mm. up to my neck. That's your alarm. So put your hand over your alarm, like in the high five habit, high five your heart, high five that part of your alarm because or jumping right into it. I believe that that is your younger self asking for your attention. And typically, what we do is we push it away. We go into our heads, right? Right. So go into your body, feel it. See if you can put your hand
0: over that. But area what if I work. don't want to? What if I'm literally like, I don't like this feeling? So you yeah. know, I, I'm I'm sitting here listening to you, and yeah. and I would and I really love your work because you are trying to get us all to go to the source of what's triggering mental health issues which is stored experiences and the alarm in your body and your inability to tolerate or understand what's happening when it goes off. And so I have recently had this experience where I'm waking up and I get these waves of anxiety. And what's interesting is that this is not new for me. I mean, I've struggled with anxiety for 30 years, but we have just recently had a number of huge changes in our life. And I now live in a different state in a very small town. And when I wake up in the morning in the middle of all this change, my alarm is not on the nightstand next to me. It begins in my ankles. And it's like a hot, Lava wave that goes from my ankles up my legs, all the way up my stomach, and then it solidifies in my chest. And as soon as I feel this wave, my immediate thought is not, oh, I want to feel the alarm. It's, fuck, why am I feeling this? I don't want to feel dread. And then I d- and then I feel like I just want to hide from it or like try to fall asleep. And I know that it's just my body reacting to all this change. Like it's some sort of stored experience that is coming up and I've been working so hard on not freaking out when I feel it right. but turning toward it. And as a medical doctor and a, neur- and a neuroscientist and somebody who, who has struggled with anxiety for 30 years, why is turning toward this alarm the answer? In that moment, like what would happen? Like, tell me what happens when you turn toward it and you put your hands on your chest or you go, oh, thank you. You're just trying to protect me because you're scared to death that you now live in Vermont and you have no friends and uh, Mm -hmm. you're very far away for your kids. And you're going to live alone here on this mountain and be even more lonely. Like I get through this whole like catastrophizing, which only make it worse, versus. (sighs) ah. welcome this bullshit in like i don't want to like i just don't want it to be there russ
1: yeah i get it i get it what if it's not bullshit though mel what if it's what if it's little mel did you have a nickname when you were when you were a little girl
0: this really is becoming therapy is not
1: it well i give it a try
0: (laughs) yeah when you started talking about the mismatch with the mom i'm like i hope my mother doesn't Uh, listen to this episode because i even feel guilty for admitting that we are kind of a mismatch or are a mismatch um yeah. Well, my my sometimes my mom calls me Melly, and friends of mine call me Melly, and um, yeah, friends of mine called me Melly.
1: Is there a name that you relate to as a child, a nickname that you relate to?
0: You know, in many ways, I think Mel, because okay. I still feel very much like a child at times, and I still feel like that vulnerable kid, and I still feel like the um, person that's on the outside looking at. I feel separate. Like that word separate makes a lot of sense for me. Um, Like there's a a feeling that I have in life that I'm observing what's happening, but I'm not a part of it.
1: Yeah, and you know, just because you've kind of given me permission here, I mean, you've spent a lot of your life outrunning your anxiety, right? And it's worked for you, Mel. You're very successful. You know, it's worked for you. I see this with a lot of very intelligent people. They can intellectually kind of outrun their anxiety. What does that even mean? It means that you keep yourself so busy that you don't get a chance to sit with that
0: alarm in your body. I don't want to sit with it. That's why. Exactly. Why do you think moving to Vermont where there's nothing to do is so fucking terrifying? Like I can't run to Target to to make my anxiety go away. Like I feel like I'm addicted to negative stress and this addiction to negative stress is what I've done to numb my anxiety.
1: Well, it's sublimating it.
0: What is sub? That is a big word. What does sublimating mean?
1: You've taken this energy and you found a way to make it work for you.
0: So I've taken the negative alarm yeah. or the alarm yeah. in my body, and yeah. I've channeled it in a direction so I don't have to feel it. Yes. And when you said, "What if the alarm is trying to help you?" What yeah. the hell did you mean by that?
1: What if it's what if it's little Mel? You know, what if it's what if it's the younger version of you saying, hey, I need some attention. And then when you say, you know, fuck off, I don't want to feel you. (laughs) Literally, what if if you had a child come up to you in a grocery store and they were crying and they had their hands up in the air to pick them up? Would you push them away? Would you go see ya? Fuck off. You know, no, you wouldn't. You'd pick that damn child up, but we won't do it for ourselves. God, that's That's so true. Yeah, we won't do it for ourselves. We'll do it for Wait, our pets?
0: You're yeah, right. You're absolutely right. Like if I if somebody if you if somebody else had an alarm going off in their body. Yep. And they were like freaking out or worried or sad or upset or needing attention or reassurance, you would give that to them.
1: But you don't do it for yourself.
0: No, and I think that this is the singular biggest Like mistake that society has made around understanding anxiety. I I just had a huge breakthrough here. Holy shit, Russ. Um, Okay. So let me just see if I can give this back to everybody listening. So it's the fact that you're scared of the alarm or you can't tolerate it and you don't understand what it's trying to ask of you that makes it worse. Yes, And if you were to realize that any tension or fear or kind of scary feeling in your body is an alarm system from your inner child asking you for reassurance or love or attention, and you just gave yourself that reassurance or love or attention, the alarm would turn off. Is that what you're saying? Slowly, yeah, because
1: it's been an adaptation for you too. You got to remember that the ego thinks it's protecting you by firing- I I
0: don't understand what the ego is. That, that's too Uh-oh. intellectual for me. So yeah, so, so, back I will have of, you back to uh, talk about the ego. But the second anybody says ego, I'm like, oh, this is somebody who's way smarter than me. I don't want to try to figure out what the hell an ego is. Like, so, 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 and we will have you back because we all need to know what the ego is. However, sure. I just want to stay on this because I think this is a groundbreaking idea that I want everybody who either has some level of situational, or generalized anxiety, or love somebody who has situational or generalized anxiety. And at that, at this moment in time, that would be every human being on the planet. And I want you to understand that we have been taught that we're supposed to attack it from the neck up mm-hmm. with the thinking first. And that's one of the things you need to do to cope. But the real heart of healing your anxiety, which you claim you've done. And I want to hear about that. I feel like I understand anxiety. I still hate it. And I need to have a different relationship with it. And everybody needs, for the sake of your kids, the people that you love, for yourself, you need to understand this alarm system in your body and the fact that it desperately needs you. And you need to take a neck down approach to listening to the alarm and diffusing it in a way that, wow. So over time, if you do this, the alarm doesn't go off as much.
1: As soon as you put your hand over that place of alarm, you will feel instantly better. I'm not saying it's going to you know, take it from a, a nine to a two, but it's going to take it from a nine to a four because you're actually from a, a consciousness perspective, you're actually going at the root source of the problem which is this little child in you that says, I don't like this person. And it's not this person. It's basically, I don't like someone from my past that this person reminds me of.
0: Or I don't like the feeling that I have in my body when I see this person. And this is a familiar feeling from my past. Yeah. Wow. Um, My head is spinning. I'm learning so much from you. I think I'm getting this Dr. Kennedy, but I want to make sure that everybody listening is getting this too. So let me explain back what I think you're trying to teach us. And you can tell me if we've got this, okay? So this alarm is actually very familiar to us because as a kid, there was a moment where you felt separate from your parents. You described it as this parental mismatch, which I really liked because it gave me the space to see that you know, even though your parents may have tried the best that they could, it just didn't work for you. But the problem is when you can't connect, when there's this mismatch, you're alone as a kid and it actually makes you feel unsafe. And so when you have a parent that you can't connect with or, you know, it's un- they're unpredictable or they make you feel invisible, that alarm system in your body, you're saying it develops as a child. And that's why it's so familiar to you when you feel it as an adult. And this point that you keep talking about, that anxiety results because of separation anxiety as a child, I think I get it now. Because as a child, there were times where you felt separate, unsafe, unseen, not heard, or not loved, or invisible in your own home. And that original experience, which we probably don't remember, gets stored in your body when you're really, really little. And then from that point forward, because it's in your body, any time that you feel invisible or you feel attacked or you feel unloved, it just gets stronger. This is why middle school sucks, isn't it? Because you're always feeling unsafe or alone or separate. And so it becomes almost this automatic response in your body, any time you feel separate, As an adult. Yeah, totally. You know, I actually just think I had this experience. I was invited to go to a trunk show that somebody was hosting, you know, at their home. And I walked in and it was lovely. Everybody there was like super nice to me, but they were all already good friends. And so I'm the newcomer stepping into a tight friend group. And I immediately felt that alarm. I felt uncomfortable being there, and I realize now it's because that experience of feeling separate from others was triggered by walking into a room of people that know each other really, really well, and I'm the new person. So the thing that's interesting about that, Dr. Kennedy, is that that's not really something I would say is anxiety, but what I'm learning from you today is that any moment where you feel separate. It could be super subtle, you're the outsider, you're not connecting. That's gonna trigger that alarm. And when you know that all you gotta do is notice it and maybe put your hand on your heart or just reassure yourself in that moment, you're gonna get stronger and stronger. That's so cool. I guess that's how you could actually start to feel like you belong to any room that you walk into because you belong to yourself.
1: Yeah, and what happens is when we feel the alarm, we go up into our heads to escape it because we feel this alarm in our body. It's like, I don't want to feel this. So we go up into our heads and we try and think, well, you know, what could this be? You know, we analyze, we go into this, we we have this like just fixation, this left hemisphere of fixation on figuring stuff out, which basically just creates more of a problem. You're not going to solve anxiety, which is basically a problem of overthinking with more freaking thinking, it's not gonna work.
0: Well, okay, so, so, so can I ask you a question? Why the hell, yeah. if there is an alarm system wired in our body, why yeah. is our brain not able to go, it's just an alarm system? Just give yourself a hug and take a deep breath, thank it for trying to protect you, next. Why do we not just automatically say that? Why do we kill ourselves in our own minds with our thoughts?
1: Because we don't understand it's there in the first place. We don't the understand. The alarm? Yeah. We don't understand that it's our younger self asking for our attention. So we feel pain. And like any organism, we withdraw from pain. We're not teaching people how to get rid of their anxiety. We're teaching them how to acclimatize to it. And then I add on to that and stop adding thoughts to it. Because as soon as you add thoughts to the alarm, A, you're getting out of the problem. And B, you're just making it worse. So basically, we get in this thing, what I call the alarm anxiety cycle. So, something triggers us say we're say we're in that lineup. we see this person that we don't like, and then we go, "Oh, why don't I like this person I should really I should really try and make an effort, you know, I should really, and it's like, well, no, no, she did this or I'm did like, that. don't
0: make eye contact, get on the yeah. phone, make a fake phone yeah. call, avoid, yeah. avoid, turn shoulder, turn yeah. shoulder,
1: run away, yes, run away, you know." to quote a Monty Python thing. So, so basically what we're doing is we're trying to intellectualize the alarm that we're feeling in our body. And it the, the, the it's not, the, the solution isn't in our minds. The solution's in our body, which is why so many people have a hard time healing from anxiety because we're trying to use more thoughts to combat overthinking.
0: Here's my big takeaway. My big takeaway right now so far is that all the thinking that we reflexively do about the feelings in our body makes the alarm louder and that we have to learn to stop going above the neck and thinking about what's going on and we need to train ourselves to go below the neck into our bodies and turn toward the alarm and give ourselves the reassurance and the soothing or whatever it is that the alarm is asking for in that moment. Yeah. And that if you do that, you are now taking step one on the path of truly curing your anxiety.
1: That's exactly what it is. You're getting at the root cause, which is the alarm. The thoughts are not the cause. The thoughts are a symptom. So the thoughts are just the byproduct of this alarm that's stuck in your body. Now, thoughts do cause, you know, anxiety. There's no two ways about that. But I think we, where, we, where the mismanage is, where the, where the mistake is, is that we believe the thoughts originate before the feeling.
0: The feeling starts before the thought. Because th- every one of us knows a kid that can work themselves up into a panic attack because they think they're going to throw up. Sure. So our son Oakley, when he was little, he was constantly picked on at school. So of course he felt nervous in the morning before he had to head into school. Plus the kid had dyslexia and ADHD, all of which was not diagnosed. So he's heading into a full day in a classroom where he physiologically, neurologically is incapable of doing what is going to be asked of him. And so his body before entering that situation sounds an alarm. And when the Alarm sounds and the physiological changes happen. Guess what physiological feeling he has? His stomach starts to rumble because as the physiology of the alarm changes and the chemistry in his digestive tract changes, he starts getting butterflies that feel like pterodactyls. And then all of a sudden, instead of just giving himself a hug and going, it's going to be okay. Today's going to be an okay day. I can face this. Instead of reassuring himself, he goes into his head and says, oh my God, my stomach, I think I'm going to puke. I can't go to school. Holy, holy, da, And he ramps himself. We were dealing with panic attacks with this kid where he would literally bang his head on the kitchen island. I don't want to go to school crying. He would force himself to throw, he would get so worked up, he would actually throw up. I mean, it was horrible. And I now can see that all of the interventions that were being done with this kid, with therapists, which were all about just change the channel upstairs. And then he would turn to them and say, but sometimes when I change the channel, it takes me to a channel I don't want to watch. So what if I change the channel of my thoughts and I get another bad thought? Like even he was reacting against it, but nobody taught us that what the kid needed was a hug, validation, reassurance in that moment physically to get the alarm to quiet.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you nailed it. So, you know, I think that's, that's part of it is that, especially with kids, especially with children, you know, it's so important that they feel you, that they feel seen, heard, and loved. Touch is such a valuable thing with kids. It's just so amazing. My wife, Cynthia, is a somatic trauma therapist. She deals mostly with people that have pre-verbal trauma before the age of seven years old. So they don't have a story about it, right? Wow. T-
0: How do they so- know they have trauma before the age of seven?
1: Because they feel it in their body. Because they feel alarmed every day. And they don't know why. Because they haven't encoded it to a point where they can... See, the amygdala never forgets. The amygdala encodes everything. Birth trauma, everything. It encodes everything. But... We don't have the retrieval mechanism to pull it back up. So we think we have no childhood memories, which is a bit of a semantic thing because we do have childhood memories. We just can't retrieve them. But basically with Oakley, like it's 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 getting him into his body, into a safe place. So you practice with him, you know, putting your, and this is what I do with, I know he's older now, but but this is what I do with parents is I, I get, put your hand on your child's heart, then put your other hand on their back about the same level as your mm. as your front hand. And just sit there with them and just allow their nervous system to regulate and just allow them to feel it and create this safe place in your body. Because this is the next place I'd, I'd like to go with this little interview that we're doing yeah. is finding us like people say, oh, I don't want to go to my body. It's like, I understand that. So how can we do that? Well, we find a place in our body that's either uh, safe, you know, with me, it's my kind of my breath around my nose because I used to do a lot of meditation, um, And then what we do is we feel the alarm and then we go into this safe place and then we go back into the alarm.
0: Okay, so hold on a second. Before you teach us how to find a safe space in our own bodies, I want to make sure that you guys heard that love sandwich thing because that was really cool. So you just put your hand on your child's heart. And then you put your other hand on their back at about the same level as your front hand. And then all you do is sit there with them and allow their nervous system to regulate and allow them to feel your hands on their body and you allow them to feel it. And this creates this safe space in your kid's body. That is so cool. And, you know, Dr. Kennedy, you were just about to show us. And for those of you that are not watching on YouTube, what he did is he basically put his hands up on his cheeks. So imagine where uh, sunglasses rest on your cheeks. Put your hands right there, your fingers right there. And he was pressing on that. That happens to be where Dr. Kennedy's safe space is. Okay, and so you can see this on our YouTube channel because we put up uncut versions of all of our uh, podcast episodes. Just go to YouTube.com/slash Mel Robbins and you can watch him do this. But you know, I want you to walk us through this second tool of locating a safe place in your body because it might, you know, I I don't particularly feel safe in my cheeks, Doctor Kennedy. So how do we do this? What are some other places that patients of yours have selected in the past to get people oh, an idea? Oh, it's all
1: over. It's all, but, it, but basically I get the, where's, where's a safe place in your body? And a lot of them will say, I don't feel safe. And I'll say, well, where's a neutral place? It's like, well, my right knee feels like there's, there, there's no feeling in my right knee. It's like, okay, let's go into this pain of your heart, you know, from this recent breakup that you've gone through. Now let's, let's go and just bring our attention into that right knee and then go back into this. I'm doing this quite a bit faster than but I when do. But
0: when you say bring your attention to your right knee, yeah. if I'm doing this exercise with you, does that mean that I've got kind of my eyes closed and I'm mentally working my way down to my knee? So you're yeah. mentally kind of locating your attention at your knee. Okay, got it.
1: Yeah, because that feels either safe or neutral, yeah. right? So what we're doing is we're basically training your unconscious mind that this pain that you're feeling in your heart is not all of you. Because what will happen is Ooh. the amygdala has no sense of time. So when you get triggered, you will go back. You will turn into that 11-year-old. And then basically what we need to do is train your amygdala like, no, I'm not back there. I'm not 11 years old anymore. I'm actually my age that I am now. You go into that you know, right knee that's neutral. Or if there's for me, I go into the sinuses, right? So when I get alarm, I wake up with alarm every day, right? But I don't give it that much credibility anymore. And then I go into this place in my sinuses. you actually like, touch
0: it or do you just feel it?
1: I touch it. Yeah, I touch it. And I can do it a little bit now. I might get a little zony when I do this, but basically. And what I do is I can I can locate the alarm in my solar plexus. I talk about this in the book.
0: Where are the solar
1: plexus? Oh, it's right where your ribs meet, right where the bottom part of the sternum. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So that's where where I have my alarm from growing up with my schizophrenic dad. So I will go into that alarm. I will try and intentionally give it love and attention. And then I will go up into my sinus area that feels safe. And then I will go back into that place that feels uncomfortable. So the thing is, there's a theory that says... When you experience a trauma as a child, part of you stays locked at that age for the rest of your life. Part of you, right? So what at I'm times I feel do,
0: like all of me.
1: Yeah, and it, it can be very overwhelming because it's unconscious, Mel. Like, like it's it's not something that we consciously feel. We actually get transported through the amygdala to that time. And through the insula, the insula is kind of like the the place in our brain that kind of translate the body into the mind and the mind into the body. It's kind of like the way station. So I believe that we actually create this body memory. And I think the insula has something to do with this. And then we feel exactly the same way in our bodies now as we did when the trauma was occurring, which, of course, brings up all sorts of old memories, all sorts of old panic. And then we want to make sense of that. So we worry.
0: You're right. I have another scenario that I wanna run by you, Dr. Kennedy. But first, I have to take a quick break so we can hear a short word from our sponsors. Everyone, please hold on. We're gonna be right back. I wanna take another scenario. Sure. So I have a really good friend That is in the middle of a massive, um, like kind of venture capital pitch. Okay. And she is doing presentation after presentation to raise a ton of capital for this, uh, you know, super cool thing she's launching. And she is a ball of knots. She has the alarm going off all the time, the stakes feel high. And I realize part of creative energy, part of being successful, part of the kind of motivation that can drive somebody during a very successful time and the adrenaline that shoots through you, that's part of what happens when things are high stakes. How do, do these tools help you be more successful in those moments where you're at bat and it, this is a big game you're playing. And that kind of adrenaline rush and alarm in your body is going off all the time. How do you use these tools in those moments?
1: Well, you practice them first. There's a little thing that, that I talk to people about all the time. I said, hey, Mel Robbins, uh, December the 1st, I'm going to take you to the basketball court and I'm going to give you 10 foul shots. And if you make three of them, I'm going to give you $5 million dollars. Now, would you start practicing foul shots the day before no no you'd you'd start shooting foul shots every day right so that's what i mean it's like okay so what i would do with her uh the short version is i would probably find her alarm and work on that first but what i would do with her is i would say okay where is this alarm in your body you know i find it can you put your hand over it can you breathe into it can you do this can you practice this a number of times a day so that when you need it when you're going into that boardroom You know, you can do a two minute thing in the bathroom where you put your hand over your alarm, you breathe into it, you regulate your body, you relax your shoulders, you relax your jaw, close your eyes, you go into this place that you've practiced a number of times, and then you can come back out in a regulated state.
0: Now, from a scientific standpoint, I know one reason why this is really important when you're a high achiever. And that is based on research out of UCLA, we wrote about this uh, extensively in The High Five Habit, Dr. Judith Willis has discovered that when your alarm system is going off in your body, it impairs your cognitive functioning. What does that mean? That means if you get all freaked out before this board pitch that you're supposed to do, your alarm system is not gonna help you think clearly. You're gonna forget what you wanted to say. You're not gonna process as quickly. So it is critical For you to walk into these high stakes moments with the highest brain functioning, it's critical that you actually know how to quiet that alarm. But based on your research and your work, Dr. Kennedy, why does this matter? Not only for people that have generalized anxiety, but it matters for everybody, including high achievers.
1: Well, because you want to be able to train yourself to regulate your own nervous system is basically what it comes down to. And people with anxiety don't didn't have a parent that regulated their own nervous system so they have to do it themselves and nobody's coming to save you like I think I see that with people all the time no one's coming to save you like you have to do this for yourself and therapists can help doctors can help whatever but unless you do it for yourself it's not coming from a place that's really going to dissipate that alarm And I see this with a lot of people. It's like they they have this, I think we have this unconscious belief when we have parents that didn't quite meet our needs. We don't do self-care for ourselves because we assume that parent is gonna come back. This isn't conscious, this is all unconscious. You've gotta start taking responsibility for your own body, your own alarm, and realize that it's up to you. It's that child in you that wants you back. It wants to connect with you. And if you are pushing it away all the time, that child is either going to shut down and you're going to go into depression or it's going to go into this fight flight mode where you're always anxious and with you Mel, bringing it back to you is that this is this is how you you would you know outrun the anxiety and every success that you would have would kind of put a little you know an anesthetic on that anxiety
0: well part of the reason too is that you get a lot of positive attention when you're achieving and I started yeah. marrying achievement with worthiness and being safe and being connected. Achievement means that your worth is attached to something outside of you. Totally. And whenever I wasn't doing something or going after something or being really busy, I didn't feel worthy. I, the alarms were going off. Totally. Before we go, there's a couple just quick questions I want to try to rapid fire. Number one. What's the difference between coping with anxiety and healing it?
1: So coping with your anxiety is mostly a a top-down thinking process. You know, you learn thinking strategies that help you deal with it. This anxiety isn't real. I'm over-exaggerating, whatever that is. Healing it is going back to that child that's in you, that alarm child in you, and giving them the ability to be seen, heard, and loved by you, by adult you. Now, child you is going to resist that because child you has been ignored by adult you for a very long time. So it takes a while before you start building that bridge back together again. So that's how you heal. You heal by finding that child in you and then see what she says. She may not talk back to you for a month or two months or six months, but eventually she will. And then when you develop that bridge, that conduit to her, that's when you heal. And you're not just sort of, you know, and and the analogy that I draw is that you're in a rowboat, there's a hole in the rowboat, and it's filling up with water. Now, you can do cognitive therapies, and I have nothing against cognitive therapies. I think they're helpful. But but it's basically like bailing water out of that boat, right? So what you really need to do is go underneath, patch the hole in the hull, which I believe is the old alarm, which is the old wounded version of you as a child. Find that child. Show them that they are seen, heard, and loved by you. High-five them in the mirror. Whatever you need to do, like find that child, and heal them. And then you heal at the root cause of it. You're not just bailing water by trying to change your thoughts. You're actually getting to the root cause of what's causing your anxiety, which is really a state of alarm.
0: Yeah, and the inability to understand it or to tolerate it or soothe it. You also had this post that I was like, oh, that's interesting, where you said that you rarely see anyone with chronic anxiety who is not addicted to something. Yes. And that there is a tight connection between anxiety and addictive behavior. Is addiction typically somebody's coping mechanism for the alarm? So, for example, you reach for alcohol because it drowns out the alarm. You reach for porn or drugs or stress or whatever it because. Work, it-
1: achievement. Got
0: yes. it. Okay. I got it. So. If somebody is struggling with addictive behavior, whether it is alcohol or cigarettes or vaping, or it is any of that stuff, you are more than likely not addressing the root issue, which is the anxiety and alarm that's continuing to go off in the background.
1: Yeah. And on top of that, the only way that you can feel love, connection, whatever, is alcohol, is codeine, is cocaine, whatever you're addicted to.
0: Holy cow. Okay, this is a big idea. What you're basically explaining is that the reason why it's hard for me to feel love is because I am so bonded to being a workaholic, to achieving, to being busy, that I am bonded to that addiction. And that's what's blocking my ability to just be loved. Whoa. That's so interesting because I can also see with my husband who used to have a daily weed habit that he speaks very openly about, no longer has that habit, that he was numbing that alarm in his body with the weed. And so he was bonded with the weed and the numbing sensation he became addicted to, which blocked his ability to feel love from himself, from anybody else. That is so true. So I suppose that if you don't address this alarm system in your body, you're going to always remain bonded to the things you're doing to try to drown the alarm system out. And we got to I'm just processing in real time, which is why I'm slowing down here. If you don't learn how to turn inward, slow down, feel all the crap you don't want to feel and slowly turn off this alarm, you will never experience what it's like to love yourself. And it all begins by going Inward, when you hear this alarm, instead of reaching for the joint or burying yourself in work or running to target or picking up the bottle of wine, that you need to learn how to hear that alarm and then give yourself the love and support that you never got as a kid. Holy shit. That's what I'm getting from you. Yeah.
1: And that's exactly what it is can you regulate your body? Because if you regulate your body, your mind will get regulated. If you regulate your mind, your body might get regulated. So what I'm saying is that if you go into the body, your body's much more likely to, to relax your mind than your mind is to relax your body. Because you can say, hey, relax. Oh, hey, whoa, come,
0: whoa, man. whoa. Did you guys hear that? That was a wake up call for me right there. You were just dropping freaking knowledge, Russ. Okay, hold on. I'm going to state this again. I, I, I And now I have menopause brain. And so I've just forgotten what I said. You said something like your body, if you regulate your body, it will regulate yeah. your mind. But if you it's regulate your mind, right, yeah. it'll you, you say it because you're, you're the one who said it.
1: Yeah. It's much more effective to regulate your body first, which will automatically regulate your mind. Than to try and regulate your mind to to regulate your body because your your mind lies to you all the time your body never can
0: is this why exercising is such an effective thing to do when partly. it comes to anxiety and focus
1: partly anxiety at its root is really a mind body disconnect Right. We go up into our heads and we stay in our heads because we don't want to go down in our body because that's where that's where the pain is. So we don't want to go into feeling town down in our body. We want to stay up in our thoughts. And that's another addiction. So we get addicted to worry. And, and that's and that's why it, it's so hard to treat anxiety just by trying to fix thoughts because we're addicted to thinking already. We don't need any more thinking. We need a lot more feeling, but we don't want to feel because that's where the frickin pain is.
0: Wow, Uh, this conversation has been transformative for me. And I have received uh, a few priceless gifts from this. So the first one is that all anxiety results from this original experience of separation anxiety. You use that term parental mismatch And feeling mismatched is the root cause of our anxiety as an adult. Whoa. And the second thing that I'm just sitting here spinning my mind around is that the solution is love. You got to learn how to go into your body and just love yourself, reassure yourself, make yourself feel safe. And, you know, the irony of this is I'm also realizing, my God, like most of us have done the opposite. I mean, that's what I did. I've been separate from my body. I've been neck up for as long as I can remember. Like I, I don't even have many memories from childhood because I was never truly in the room that I was in. So I wasn't there to make memories, which is, I know, very common when you've experienced a lot of anxiety or trauma in your childhood. Wow. I'm just sitting here realizing that when you can quiet the alarm, when you can feel it rising up and your mind starts to stack and look for that, you know, threat that's not there, you can turn toward yourself. You can soothe yourself. And that's the step that we all need to take. If you want to heal it, yes, the thinking part, the talking part, it's part of the toolkit. It's a very important part. It's a really important for your mindset but your recommendation is that we have to go neck down first because that alarm lives in the body it is stored in the body it is remembered by the body and so when we go neck down first then we've got a shot at truly healing that's amazing So one other question I wanted to ask you, because it is important to be able to cut off your thoughts. And the five second rule has helped millions of people with their anxiety. And it's certainly helped me by interrupting those old thoughts. But I also know that we need to replace the thoughts. So do you have anything that you could share with us that you find to be an effective neck up approach? some sort of saying or or reassuring sentence that you could repeat to yourself after you calm your body down? Absolutely. What what do you say?
1: Basically this, am I safe in this moment? Am I safe in this moment? I know I've got a presentation to do on Friday. I know I've got a big tax bill. I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. My mom is sick, but am I safe in this moment?
0: Why a question? Because I like saying, I am safe. I do it both. am you okay. Do it
1: both ways. I find that people with anxiety, though, this is the thing about saying I love you in the mirror, is that people don't allow that in. The reason why you're anxious in the first place is because you block love. So when you say I whoa, love whoa, you. Whoa,
0: whoa, whoa, whoa. The reason yeah. why you're anxious is because you block love? For yourself,
1: yes. What? You're separated from yourself. That's exactly what it comes down to. That's what anxiety our alarm really is. It's a separation. And this is what I do. This is my little, we didn't get into my little intuitive thing here. We're going but- to in
0: a minute. Hold on. I think I got it. That literally your alarm is asking for love and reinsurance. Absolutely. And when you go into your head, you block yourself from receiving it. Yes. When you go and into you your body high. and you breathe into the alarm and soothe yourself, you are actually giving yourself love. Yes. Holy shit.
1: And a lot of people with anxiety just they're they're uncomfortable with love in the first place. I'll give you a very quick example from my own life. So, my dad before I was 10 years old was this wonderful guy. Like he was so uh, you know connected to me and nurturing taught me how to hit a ball play chess all this kind of stuff very very connected to him And I loved him greatly and then as I got to be a young teen and his schizophrenia got worse and worse and worse and it became suicidal and a bunch of other things I withdrew from him because to see him in in, in horrible depression was just too painful for me. So I blocked my love for him because it was just too painful to feel it. And that you can't block love from a parent without blocking love on some level to everyone. So, so this is one of the things. So when you find the blocks that you have to loving yourself, this is how you heal. And this is basically my little intuitive gift is I can tell people where their blocks are to loving themselves. And then when you remove those blocks, the anxiety, the alarm just kind of fades away. So this is, this is really going at the root cause protocol as opposed to just trying to make you think better.
0: Wow. So how do you help people find that place where they've blocked love?
1: Well, I go through their body. You know, like what I believe, the short version of what I believe happens to you is, as a child, you experience an overwhelming stress. It's too much for your conscious mind to handle, so you stuff it down. Freud would call it repression. You stuff it into the unconscious. And the body keeps the score, just like Bessel van der says. So because the body is a representation of the unconscious mind, and the unconscious mind is where these old you know, damaging programs are stored, they'll show up in the body. So I will find in your body where you feel that alarm and reverse engineer it to get into the same room with those unconscious programs, and then I can change them.
0: Wow. That's pretty cool. I think um, my biggest takeaway, and I keep saying this because clearly every 10 minutes I have a life-changing takeaway from this conversation. But my biggest takeaway is the connection between the alarm that goes off and the love that you're not allowing yourself to receive. Totally. And that it's beautiful to think that loving yourself is the way you cure anxiety. And what a beautiful thing. And it reminds me of something um, pretty amazing that my son Oakley shared with me. Um, I said to him the other day, I was like, dude, you know, one of the things I love about you is that you more than almost anybody I have ever met are just so comfortable with yourself. Like you really seem to like yourself. And now, you know, I should preface this by saying that, you know, this is a kid that really struggled three different schools before he was done with eighth grade, severe dyslexia, got so severely bullied at a camp that we had to pull him out of it. And the director wrote a long letter apologizing for everything like it was this kid has been through the ringer. And he said to me, well, mom, he said, I realized just and he said this happened during quarantine. During quarantine, when I got to hang out with you and dad and, you know, my two older sisters, all four people who love me, I just started to realize just because other people pick on me or hate me doesn't mean I have to hate myself. Like I could actually just like myself. Like I could really just allow myself to love myself. And I got to be honest with you from that moment, I I can really almost pinpoint that during the pandemic, like this kid's chronic anxiety was gone. He developed this very positive attitude and it all began from this insight around, hey, if the world is not giving me the acceptance and the love that we all are seeking, maybe I can just give it to myself. Yeah. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. I never thought about meeting the alarm of anxiety with acts of self-love.
1: Yeah, and that's, you know, it's counterintuitive on some level because when you're anxious, you don't feel loving. You know, basically your social engagement system is shut off, you're in survival mode. So when you're in survival mode and survival physiology, you go into the emotional part of your brain, which is, you know, evolutionarily programmed to look for threat. And if there's no threat in your environment, if you're just lying there in bed with your, your the sheets up to your neck, you will find threat because you can make it with your big prefrontal cortex. You can make worries.
0: Well, not anymore because we now know that the second you feel the alarm go off, five, five four, four, three, three two, 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 one, one you do end not end go there. upstairs. You go, no. you go downstairs. You go no. downstairs now. So I love to leave people in action. Obviously, everybody. There will be links, not only to uh, Russ's book, Anxiety Rx. There will be links to his social media accounts. You will find all kinds of resources in the show notes, but I want to leave people in action. So, you know, this is one of those incredible conversations that really changes how somebody thinks about a massively overwhelming topic like anxiety and mental health. Now what I wanna do is leave people in action with one simple new practice or habit that I want everyone to try every day for the next seven days. And what is the exercise that you want each one of us to practice for the next seven days So that we can start to use the tools that you um, have been researching and changing lives with. What's the one thing you want us to do? Can I do two? Yes. As long as it doesn't involve the ego.
1: Okay, fair (laughs) enough. All right. So the first thing that I would say is what I said earlier. Uh, Am I safe in this moment? Or I am safe in this moment? Because this moment is all we ever have right? thing about anxiety is it always projects you into the future. So if you bring yourself back to the moment and this work, this has worked for me. It saved my ass a number of times in the middle of the night when all my defenses are down. And I think the world is horrible. Okay. I am safe in this moment. I am safe and really feel it too. Like I am safe in this moment.
0: Is there anything we should do with our hands or with our, do you want us to close our eyes? Do you want us to? You can
1: do the high five your heart.
0: If okay, which is putting your heart right in the center of your chest, take a deep breath. I'm safe. If I'm you safe. find yeah, Okay. What else yeah. could you
1: do? If you find your alarm, if you know where your alarm is, if you know, track the alarm when you feel anxious, go into your body and say where am I feeling this? Is this in my belly? Is this in my chest? Is it in my in my throat? Put your hand over the place where you feel your alarm. Okay. And breathe into that. Okay. There is a little thing too uh, that I've kind of taken from Andrew Huberman about uh, the physiological sigh. Physiological sigh is something that, that humans do, and animals do it too, to calm themselves. And it's usually uh, two or one quick sniff through your nose, and then another one, and then a long, slow breath out through your mouth. Now, with my anxiety people, I modify that. So basically, this is the, this is the process that I do when I get into alarm. Is I take three breaths through my nose really quickly. At the top, I hold it for about three to five seconds, which shows me that I'm in actually controlling my breath. My breath isn't controlling me. Then I, I close my teeth and I breathe out through my teeth and make a hissing sound like And as I do that, I imagine a tire that's overinflated, just deflating in front of me. That's my mental image.
0: So everybody, number one is one time a day, if you notice an alarm in your body, and that could be tension, it could be frustration, it could be anger, it could be anxiety, it could be that worry's starting to grip you, I want you to find where that uh, alarm is, I want you to put your hand where the alarm is, and I want you to breathe into it. The second one is, let's try this breathing thing.
1: So the whole thing about the physiological sigh is that you're creating a long exhale. That's what really relaxes us is the long exhale. So when people say take a deep breath, really what you need to do is just take a long exhale. So again, it's like three breaths in. Hold. And then.
0: Okay, here we go. Wow. What's interesting about that is it requires so much focus that you can't really think about anything else.
1: Totally. That's one of the other things that it takes you off your worries. Exactly.
0: And you do feel this sort of relaxing and collapsing feeling inside you. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much for my personal therapy session. For Anytime. everybody listening, I hope you got a lot out of it. I, I, this has been a game changer. The alarm love connection is blowing my freaking mind. It is change, It's going to change instantaneously how I approach moments of alarm in myself or the people around me. I think it's going to bring a greater level of compassion. And for sure, you made me smarter today. And so I feel more equipped to really help myself and help other people that I deeply care about through these moments where life knocks you down or the fear takes over. And uh, I can't thank you enough. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Mel. And thank you. Like, you know, the five second rule and the high five habit, you know, those are books that I've listened to over the last year and, and I love them. I really, I think that they're really something that, that helps me. And then when I get helped, I am able to sort of, you know, turn my little brain on and help other people as well. So mm-hmm. it's a ripple effect, Mel. You help me, I help you.
0: Awesome. Awesome. All right. We're going to have you back. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Dr. Kennedy in the house, people. Holy smokes. So full disclosure, I had never talked to that guy ever. Like, I just knew from his Instagram account that he had knowledge to share, and that even though he and I agree on so many things, like I, I've, I too have called anxiety an alarm for the last five years. I understand uh, somatic therapy. I have experienced the power of it. I teach it. Uh, it's incorporated in all the work that I'm doing. However, I had never heard that all anxiety is the result from separation as a child. Wow. But the thing that really blew my mind is understanding that this is really about love and loving yourself. That when that alarm goes off in your body and you feel the grip or the tension or the overwhelm, that alarm is not a signal to run away or to numb or to be scared it's actually an alarm from a part of you that needs reassurance and love right now. That's it. And no one else is going to come and give that to you. And one of the most beautiful things about hearing from Dr. Kennedy is that you have within you the power to love and soothe yourself. And like any skill or any muscle or any habit, it gets easier and easier and easier the more you practice it. And so I really mean it when I say, I want you to practice what we talked about for the next seven days. In particular, I want you to pay attention to when that alarm sounds in your own body this week. And again, it doesn't have to feel like the rattled tidal wave that I feel in the mornings. It might feel more like anger gripping you or frustration overtaking you or perfectionism getting its stranglehold. Anytime that you start to feel that grip, that's the alarm. And then you're just gonna notice it. And instead of freaking out or reaching for numbing it or don't go up into your thoughts, I want you to go to where the alarm is. I want you to put your hands there. I want you to take a deep breath. That's all I want you to do this week. This is an opportunity for you to turn toward yourself to create a deeper connection with yourself, and to feel more empowered to help people around you that are also struggling. I cannot wait to hear your comments and your thoughts about this episode. Please, please share this with anybody that you think would benefit from hearing this life-changing information. Remember, it comes down to loving yourself. That's what this is about. That was the huge takeaway for me, that holy cow, I have spent... 50 years trying to run away from the fact that all I needed was more love for myself. I hope that in some small way, this will save you the heartache that I caused myself for those 50 years now that you have the understanding and tools that I didn't have until now. Alrighty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And, you know, in case nobody else tells you today, I want to tell you that I love you. I believe in you and your ability to create a better life for yourself. And I love being a part of your life with the Mel Robbins podcast. All Till next time.